Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, June 27th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero. I'm really excited for this week's episode because we've got a really awesome fish and a really neat commercial fishery to discuss. So yeah, we're featuring a semi-pelagic fish today. It's in the cod family. It's the Alaska pollock. It's a great fish to help us dig into some marine fisheries management concepts and nuances that we think folks might find useful when they start getting to know the fish they're consuming and how those fish are harvested and managed. So joining us today, we have two very good guests. The first is Dr. Jim Ionelli. He's a stock assessment scientist and a biologist with NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Service, and he's an Alaska pollock expert. Then we're also joined by Dr. Ray Hilborn. He's a decorated fishery scientist, a researcher, an author, and a professor at the University of Washington School of Aquatics and Fishery Science. Awesome. Welcome, you two. I know we're going to dig into some technical topics today. So before we do that, I was just curious what sparked your interest in fish. I had like six tropical fish tanks in my bedroom when I was in in high school. (laughs) I got interested in fish largely because the kind of science I did could be used to improve their management. So I drifted over my scientific career from actually starting off in mammals and wildlife to moving into to fish because there was an immediate use for the kind of work I did. How about you, Jim? Oh, I didn't know the story about the fish tank. I've known Ray for 40 years. <laughs> I figured I might get something good out of that. I too have a bedroom full with fish tanks. But uh, yeah, no, I, I came at it more from the ocean going side. I, I was really infatuated with uh, doing stuff on boats. And one of my close friends had just gotten a job in fisheries and um, he managed to get me on board a, a Japanese bait boat, which is a Poland line vessel that catches tuna one by one uh, by, by poles. And, and we were tagging them all throughout the Pacific. But that was cool. And yeah, that, that really did it for me. It was a long time ago now, but uh, I actually applied to go to graduate school with Ray Hilborn as a professor back in 1970, must have been 1980 maybe, but he was going to New Caledonia to work on tunas and I ended up back there. That's awesome. So we're hoping that one or both of you can help paint a picture of the Bering Sea so we have some context of where we're talking about today. How big of an area is this? How productive is it in terms of producing fish like Alaska pollock and other marine life? So the Bering Seas, especially the productive area, covers an area about the size of the state of California. And it's productive because it's relatively shallow, which means that the nutrients can mix. You hear of open ocean being a desert and all the nutrients sink to the bottom. Well, because it's generally less than 100 meters deep for that area, it tends to mix with the winds and therefore is quite productive, lots of nutrients and active ecosystem patterns from primary productivity all the way through to our beloved fish and whales. And we also like for our listeners to get a feel for the fish we're talking about in terms of what it looks like. And in the case of this fish, maybe also some common places folks might come across it in a meal. So. Alaska pollock is is a very popular fish. It's filled the niche for a lot of market fish, formerly 
Atlantic cod was a big fish and chips meal when Ray and I were young. And due to a variety of issues related to cod production, including overfishing, a cheap protein source filled in Alaska Pollock. One thing that's interesting, we also have Pacific cod, which we also manage in our fisheries management system the same way we manage our pollock. But it turns out, based on genetic results, that Alaska pollock are more closely related to Atlantic cod than Pacific cod are related to Atlantic cod. So that was kind of a an interesting finding yeah. about 10 or 15 years ago. That's super cool. And if someone had this fish in hand, just what does it look like? I mean, I, I, I've seen them. They look like a cod. But could one of you just describe what the fish looks like? Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's also more appropriately known or the official common name for it is walleye pollock. And so there was a news article today in a fishery news article <laughs> paper that just shortened it to say walleye. And I actually no. commented, well, <laughs> you don't want to get it to confuse with your favorite fish. But relative to cod, it has a bigger eye. And actually some interesting work that we've been doing, how we see them in the water column, where we find them, because they're visual predators, meaning they use their sight to prey on items, they will actually change their position in the water column. They'll go shallower when the water is more murky. And so they they do depend, especially adults, on visual cues for predation. And if you're a walleye fisherman, I could see where you can see a few similarities, maybe with the fins, just the way they're they're positioned a little bit. But yeah, don't want to confuse the two there. You mentioned, you know, fish and chips and stuff there, but I think you might be underselling all the places that people might find this. If I'm correct, this is the same kind of fish that you might find in like your fast food meals and your filet of fish sandwiches in your fish sticks that you get at the supermarket and stuff like that. Is that correct? Yes, it's, uh, it's uh, sorry for not completing that, but, but yeah, it's very popular. McDonald's filet of fish has been in that product form for quite some time. Long John Silver's, all, all the traditional Fish, fast food fish places. It's very popular there. And economically, it is a relatively low cost fish. To produce it, the, the wholesale value is something like 13 cents a pound. So it's quite cheap. And because of that, and because it's so plentiful, it really affects the international market for whitefish, which has similar their market, similar uses. One of the original ways that this fish became popular being caught by American fishermen in the late 1980s, early 1990s, is that it's very lucrative for the roe. There's a big market for the eggs. The egg sacs are marketed in Japan, and they're very, very valuable. And that continues to this day. Oh, wow. Jim, don't forget, there's also surimi. So a lot of the of the fake crab legs and things are also made from a, a product of, of commonly pollock. Yes, surimi is a very important thing. And it is traditionally, it's a 600-year-old recipe from Japan, the actual, so people think of it as a high-tech, highly processed thing, but it's it's a type of fish cake that's been for a very long time. And the approaches have been refined and improved upon, especially for the different flavors, to the extent that one of the most popular surimi markets is in France, where there's been a lot of activity uh, developing alternative food forms using the the fish paste uh, called surimi. So 
this sounds like it's a very large fishery just in terms of scale, in terms of pounds landed. What does it look like? What are the boats looking like that are going out and catching and then processing all these fish? I'll let Ray talk about some of the management stuff that happened in the late 1990s, the American Fisheries Act. But there's, you know, the, the boats that are used, it's divided in three main sectors. Basically, there's smaller boats averaging 130 feet long, and those are called catcher boats, and they operate on trips. They'll go out for anywhere from two to five days and deliver to shoreside plants. And those same boats also deliver to motherships, so it's a little bit more convenient. They can deliver the fish directly to the mothership processing. The third category of which they get roughly 40% of the quota after community development quota is taken off. And they're catcher processors. And these are basically floating fish meal, fish plants, which process all kinds of things. And it makes very high quality product because fish are only frozen. It's not like they, they're frozen whole, then they get processed someplace. They use virtually 100% of the fish. They'll take the oil and sell that, which is very lucrative, and that adds up to about 4% of the, the total catch. And they'll take the entrails and things aren't processed and turn to fish meal, which is used in a variety of agricultural settings. Folks listening might have some perceptions about bigger boats versus smaller boats. Can you talk just a little bit about the carbon footprint of these boats and maybe efficiency? I mean, it sounds like there's a couple of different ways that um, this is happening. Recently, there's been a, a, a study of the carbon footprint, and uh, there really is no difference between the carbon footprint of the small boats and the big boats. The big boats are, say, up to 300 feet long. These are the, the, the factory processors. But by the time you, you do the catching and the processing, both of those fisheries have a very, very low carbon footprint, uh, much lower than chicken or, or really any other, any agricultural livestock product. So that's a very efficient fishery, largely because the fish are very abundant and they can catch them quite easily. So yeah, by carbon footprint, they're one of the best fisheries in the world. There are lower carbon footprint fisheries for small pelagic fishes like sardines and herrings, but it's a very low carbon footprint. So carbon footprint aside, this fishery, this particular fishery is often kind of cited as one of the examples of the best fisheries management in, in the world. And I'm curious if you can talk about what makes it that way. What makes it a particularly well-managed fishery is you've got a very solid science program that keeps track of the abundance of the fish. And you've got a rigorous program to set quotas based on the abundance of fish and very, very conservative quotas so that the, uh, the scientific estimate of the potential allowable catch may be 3 million tons for a year and the actual quota may only be a million and a half. So it's been very conservatively managed. And then you have the NOAA and Coast Guard, very rigorous enforcement. All of the large vessels have two observers on board at all times. So it's got all the elements of good management. You've got good science. You've got a rigorous quota setting system, good enforcement. And a lot of this is due to the fact that over the years, the fleet has been cut way down to a relatively small number of vessels compared to what it was 
when the fishery first developed. And you mentioned observer. Just for folks that aren't familiar, that's a non-biased person or two people on a boat that's keeping track of the species that are being caught, correct? Yeah, these are basically, you have to have an undergraduate degree in biology. You have to go through a rigorous certification process. They have to be able to ID every species that comes over the side of the rail. And they're solely there for scientific data collection purposes. Boats welcome them. They treat them very well, very unbiased. I'd like to know a little bit more about the science behind this fishery, Ray. You brought that up, but Jim, working with Noah, we know Noah's a, a big player in this. Can you speak to just maybe some of the different types of science you're doing around maybe climate and how you actually understand such a, a large population of fish through that stock assessment work? Yeah, so the stuff that Ray just described, we call it tactical year-to-year stock assessment work where we look at current trends and evaluate what catch levels will affect the spawning population the most and being conservative on ensuring that that stock stays at or above kind of a target maximum productive level is one of our main goals. You know, Ray alluded to the fact that there were more boats in the 90s than there are now. That was partly by intention to make it kind of open access and competitive, but then based on work that's been done in other places, the management system moved from open access, anybody can come in, to a very controlled level of entry into fisheries management. And and that's allowed much more safety in terms of the boats. They're not racing to catch the fish. That's helped improve the overall economic aspect of it as well. And related to climate, have you seen any shifts over time, kind of longer term studies in this environment up here? We hear about a lot of changes in Alaska's environment. Is that at play at all here? Yeah. So on the tactical side of management, we're using the data we get because the fish integrate the environment really well. If they go down, we're trying to monitor that. And if they change in size, we're measuring the fish, we're investigating changes geographically. On a more strategic level, and by strategic, I mean something, well, in 10 years, we see that global climate change models uh, will affect the the average temperature in the Bering Sea. What do we expect will happen through the ecosystem? And those are less annual by year by year views, but they're very more, much more big picture to try to give the managers an impression of where things are headed and what to expect. It also helps fishers know, you know, should we be developing different kinds of fisheries? Should we be diversifying that, that type of thing? And those highly uncertain, not only the prediction of temperature change, but how fish react, because we see annual variability still remains high. Maybe that annual variability in incoming year classes will increase under climate change with an underlying pattern, you know, of what do warmer conditions mean for the Bering Sea? It's a big area. It has a lot of mixing. We don't expect the sunlight, the primary productivity that's experienced in the Alaskan summers to, to be that different. And the other controlling factor is nutrients. And one thing the Bering Sea enjoys, I think, is a fairly stable upwelling of nutrients onto the shelf. And, and that is something that I think will maintain the overall productivity of the Bering Sea. 
let's talk more generally about quotas too, because I think the way that quotas work and how people have sort of changed from this, you know, sort of Olympic system where everyone can go out and catch as much as they want to assigning personal sections to certain individual groups from the total pie is actually really fascinating. So if you can talk about quotas in general, that would be awesome. Okay, I can I can do that. When governments first started restricting the catch, they would set a quota for the fishing fleet totally. And essentially the fishery would operate until all the, the quota was reached and then the fishery would be closed. So they had to monitor the catch on really a day-by-day basis. What that led to was what's called the race to fish. And if you watched deadliest catch back in the old days, that's how the fishery was operated, that there was a quota for each of the crab species and the boats would go out there and catch fish as fast as possible. And they would often build a bigger boat in order to get a bigger share faster as possible. This is what we call the race to fish. And the race to fish in most Alaskan fisheries during the 90s and 2000s was solved in two ways. One is by assigning individual boats a certain share of the total quota. So they couldn't get any more fish by fishing faster or building a bigger boat. Incentives then became to catch the fish as efficiently as possible. The other way it was done was by assigning quotas to specific sectors, like let's say the the, uh, the factory trawler or the at-sea processors. And they then basically worked out a internal quota system among themselves. And what's happened is that they discovered that they didn't really need as many boats as they had. And they would aggregate more of their quota on a few, a smaller and smaller number of boats. So the fleet has come down first because there was a limit on the number of boats put, I don't know, Jim would know, might be back in the 80s or early 90s. And then when they went to ITQs and co-ops, there was this natural dynamic of reducing the number of boats. So one common complaint that I've heard of this individual transferable quota type system is that it aggregates the catch into smaller and smaller hands and that that can divert funds away from coastal communities. But Jim and his one of his responses, he's talking about the community development quotas associated with this fishery. And that seems like a kind of a way to mitigate some of those negative side effects should we say, of the transferable quotas. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what those community development quotas mean for those local communities. All of the negotiations early on in the early 90s, it was basically who gets what share of the the quota among the shore-based catcher boats and the at-sea processors. Traditionally, the at-sea processors took more, this is before 1992, than the shore-based. And as part of that, it got flipped that after community development quota, which they the communities will get 10% of the quota, no matter what it is. So if the quota is a million tons, they'll get 100,000 tons of that quota. And the remainder gets divided among the other sectors, which is offshore and shore-based boats. And do the communities, do they actually use that quota to catch fish? Or do they sell it off to the companies that can harvest it more efficiently and then reinvest the funds in some other way? Or how does that work? Yeah, very good question. That's exactly what has happened. They they leased the quota early on because they didn't have the equipment to go to go catch that. And now some of the bigger boats are owned by the communities as well. Uh, a, a good share is taken directly by the communities. Parts of the community that have invested in boats are fishing their quota, and the remainder gets leased back to the fleet. 
So the ones who haven't bought or developed their own boats are typically leasing their quota to the existing industrial fisheries and then taking that money. And a lot of it has been invested in buying shares of the industrial fisheries, the publicly traded companies. So the result has been that over time, more and more of the catch that's happening in the Bering Sea, both Pollock and other fisheries, is actually owned by the communities on the, on the coast of the, of the Bering Sea. This is just fascinating. I love this. So as a consumer, say I really like fish sticks, I like some of the products you guys mentioned. I'm curious in terms of how exactly fish are being extracted from the the waters here. You've mentioned trawling. So I think maybe just a quick description of what that technique is for folks who aren't familiar with those types of nets. And we've talked a little bit about where these fish are located in the water column, but where exactly are these nets fishing? How are they set up? Um, And are there any concerns with bycatch? By regulation, they are all taken with what's called a midwater trawl, which means they won't carry doors that drag on the bottom, stirring up mud or anything, they will touch the bottom. It's Pollock are known as being semi-demersal, which means they're associated to the bottom, especially as they get older. So the younger the younger Pollock ages, two, three, four, tend to be in midwater. And so the midwater nets are, are perfect for catching them. But by regulation, midwater trawls are all that can be used. And as far as bycatch goes, per ton of fish, there's less than 1% is bycatch of unintended species. That sounds like a little, but if you're catching 1.5 million tons in a a given year, well, 1% of that can add up to be a lot of fish. Yeah. What are some of those species that are being bycaught? We have two categories of bycatch. One category is basically oh, I caught Pacific cod while fishing for pollock. Depending on what the current in-season management is happening, they might be required to throw them over the side or retain them. There's another category that's extremely important and the most important for uh, uh, the pollock fishery itself is called prohibitive species catch. A little step back into history, prior to our declaration of the economic zones of 200 miles, there was a lot of foreign fishing that took place in this region, mainly by Japanese and Russian vessels. And they took a lot of things. And then when we declared our 200 mile zone, we said, well, we'll jointly manage the ground fish resources, which means pollock, uh, yellowfin sole, a bunch of other species, except here's a list of prohibited species, which you may not target. And the prohibited species list quickly is Pacific halibut, any salmon, all the, all the main species of crab and herring. And that categorization as prohibited species continues to this day for our ground fish management. Every 10th fish that's caught is sampled for genetics. We have a big genetics program that assigns them to different river systems. And based on that, we're able to say, oh, the pollock fishery has the biggest impact on the upper Yukon or the, you know, whatever river system there is out there. Incidentally, the impact rates are relatively low. For the upper Yukon, the estimates are less than 1%. And for coastal Western Alaska stocks, if there hadn't been any pollock bycatch of salmon, uh, there would have been roughly 3% more in the last couple of years. Okay. 
That's good to know. That's a big, yeah, big question, a big issue for folks up here. Thank you. So, you know, back when I was a kid, and one of the things that kind of got me into fisheries and studying this in general was, you know, I was in the bathroom reading my National Geographics and seeing things like the pollock fishery wasn't managed well and seeing that there aren't going to be any fisheries left by 2048. And then you start doing the research and actually reading things more. And you realize that some of this media sensationalism is kind of inaccurate. And I was just kind of hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions that you hear about, well, this fishery, but then also about fisheries in general. And also why is this misinformation kind of being promulgated? Well, look, there's a very wide perception that the oceans are being emptied of fish. It's certainly not true for the United States or, in fact, for the countries of the world that manage the fisheries uh, intensively. And so that would be most developed countries and a lot of developing countries or intermediate countries like Peru, Chile, South Africa, where uh, Argentina, where their fisheries are rebuilding rather than declining. And so the big picture is that there's certainly a lot of places in the world where there's concerned about overfishing, but those are, are cer certainly not the U.S. And it's primarily places that really haven't got the kinds of elements of fisheries management that we see in Alaska and a lot of other places of, of a science program, harvest control rules, and, uh, and enforcement. Well, and I think I'll add, I'll add to this that there's a lot of nuances, right, with these fisheries. So, I mean, if we're talking about commercial fisheries in general collapsing, I mean, there's there's ones that are doing really well, ones that aren't, like you've kind of mentioned. Um, so just there's nuances. It's a good take home. Yeah. Part of I'd say that there's two parts to the narrative. One is that horror stories make the media and good news stories tend to not make the media, certainly with not the place. In 2006, there was a paper that said if current trends continue, all fish stocks would be collapsed by 2048. A number of us got together, including many of the authors of that paper, to really look carefully at abundance data. And we published a paper three years later showing that, well, no, actually, it didn't look like that. It looked like stocks at the time were sort of stable. The original story made the front page of the New York Times the three years later saying, well, no, not really true, made about page 23. At least it did get to the New York Times, but it wasn't a front page. The other is, uh, you know, frankly, there's there are groups out there that raise money by scaring people about the ocean. The places that fisheries have been most vilified have been just overfishing stocks are disappearing. Another is that bottom trawling destroys the oceans. And, uh, you know, I always like to say, yes, certainly fishing changes marine ecosystems, but it doesn't change them nearly as much as growing crops or, 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 grow, or growing livestock. You know, my son's a farmer. Every bit of land that he farms has had the entire ecosystem removed and replaced with grass or corn or whatever, potatoes, whatever he's growing. Uh, the Bering Sea probably looks pretty much the same as it did before industrial fishing began. You certainly have the same species. The ratios might be changed. It's not a total, a very different place. Just to add to Ray's last comment there, just in the Bering Sea, we also have a big group that is monitoring the habitat, which includes, you know, impacted areas where there's fishing, how fast is the in front of the animals on the bottom uh, return. And those, those things are closely monitored uh, as part of a national program on essential fish habitat. 
you talked about these misconceptions, which I think is great and very important. What are the biggest real issues out there for people who are paying? Because, you, you know, there is overfishing is an issue in some places. But if you're talking to someone who's just trying to get their story straight and figure out what the truth is, what are the things that they should actually be concerned about? Or is it all hunky-dory? I guess one of my perspectives is that U.S. fisheries management has been remarkably successful at rebuilding fisheries. This, I'd say this is federal fisheries management, which has, you know, we have a law that says you can't overfish anything. And one of the results is we've become incredibly conservative in our fisheries management. And to a great extent, we've been exporting the impacts on the environment by being super cautious here and then importing fish from places that aren't cautious at all. So, you know, recently we closed the California fishery for swordfish, and now we import our swordfish from Korea and other places like that that have much less stringent environmental regulations. You know, the U.S. could produce more fish, but we would have to accept more environmental impacts than we currently do. And uh, it's not at all clear that the, the world is a better place because of what we're doing, because we're really exporting our environmental impacts to other places and by importing the fish from there. So this has been a pretty technical conversation, pretty serious conversation. Um, so to wrap things up, you have a take home for folks to make good consumer choices? I'd say buy American fish. You can't go wrong. My personal advice is to not take things too seriously, that uh, you're, you're, you're going to ruin the world if you choose one type of fish over another. I think compared to other animals, it's, it's across the board a better, a better choice. But the difference between eating a farm salmon versus a wild salmon, it's kind of a personal choice. I think the quality is amazing for both. If 20 years ago you had asked me if you think it would ever be possible to have 700,000 tons of salmon being produced from farms in Norway that taste really good in an annual market, it's, it's amazing. I mean, they're really some incredible uh, products out there. Thank you both. I mean, I wish I had more time to talk with you guys. This has been great, though. I've, I've really appreciated it. And hopefully someone will hear this and it'll really help to inform them about uh, their seafood choices. This has been awesome. Well, thank you, too. Yeah. All right, everybody. We hope you get out there and enjoy all the fish and get to know the Alaska Pollock, either through catching it or eating it or reading about it. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>